Hi, I'm Dr. Garth James from the Center for Biofilm Engineering at Montana State University, and I'd like to welcome you to the webinar, Approaches to Biofilm-Associated Infections, Evaluating Gaps in Standardized Methods for Clinical Applications. The faculty will be myself, uh, Dr. Hamoud from Texas Tech University, and Dr. Studley from The Ohio State University. There are our disclosures. And here's the program information. This is approved for one CME, CNE, or CPME credit. You will be redirected back to the landing page after the webcast to complete the post-test and evaluation. You can then download or print your certificate. Program is provided by the North American Center for Continuing Medical Education, LLC, an HMP company. This program is supported by an educational grant from Next Science. The learning objectives are to investigate gaps in evidence for standardized methodological approaches of biofilm models, which can lead to disparities between testing conditions. Two, to explore the issues that need to be considered in developing performance standard for anti-biofilm therapeutics and three, to examine approaches to evaluating existing new antibiofilm technology for chronic wound care. I will pre present the first session on in vitro wound biofilm models. And so here's a list of a number of biofilm models that have been used in biofilm research and testing. And as you can see, there's a, a wide variety here, and I probably don't have them all on this slide. And today I'm just gonna focus on models that have been used to evaluate uh, wound treatments. And so the first point I wanna make is there's a big difference between models for research and models for testing. For research, the experiments are designed to test specific hypotheses. And often, custom models are, uh, are the best approach for this. However, if we wanna test and evaluate different treatments, and perhaps for making product claims, then we need standardized models. And I'll go into a lot more detail on that in the coming slides. So these are the seven R's for standard methods. And this is from a paper published by Marty Hamilton and others from the CBE. The first one is reasonableness, um, which takes into account the expense of the technique, um, whether specialized equipment or specialized expertise is required. The second R is relevance, and that is, does the outcome of the laboratory testing match outcomes in field and clinical outcomes? And again, I'll talk some more about that later. And then there's re repeatability. With the method, does the, um, do, are similar results obtained when experiments are performed on different days? So the same experiments performed on different days, and it should get uh, similar results. Resemblance is similar to that in that control should be similar between experiments conducted on different days. So if you have an untreated biofilm, for example, the, those results should be consistent across different experiments. And then there's the responses, responsiveness of the model. And that's the ability to, of the model to detect um, changes or differences. So for example, if we had a low efficacy treatment, a medium efficacy treatment and a high efficacy treatment, the model should be able to detect the differences between those. And then there's reproducibility. 
and that's whether another lab can perform the same method and get similar results. And then finally, there's ruggedness. Is the model affected by slight changes to the protocol? And for example, um, do you get the same results at pH 6.5 as you do at pH 7.5? Well, if you don't, then that model is not rugged with respect to pH. Okay, so one of the first things we want to consider when thinking about models for the wound environment is what are the characteristics of that environment? And first, there's the substrate on which the biofilm grows. And that's tissue, which is composed of the extracellular matrix, as well as various epidermal, dermal, and uh, white blood cells, and other blood cells. And then there's the fluid, or wound exudate. And that can vary a lot between subjects and between wounds. We can have wounds that are relatively dry with low exudate, or wounds that have a lot of exudate that uh, are highly exudative, and that's important particularly for dressings because moisture control is one of the uh, big functions of a dressing. And then there's the composition of that exudate, and it contains a lot of proteins, mostly albumin, as well as amino acids and other components that are listed there. And basically those are all great substrates for promoting uh, bacterial growth. Um, the shear in a wound is low unless the wound is, is being um, cleaned. The temperature tends to be around 33 degrees C. And the wound can be exposed to microorganisms from various locations of the human body as well as from the surrounding environment. And an important distinction to consider here is biofilm prevention versus biofilm elimination. So biofilm prevention would be an experiment where the model is inoculated and then the treatment is immediately applied before the biofilm has time to develop. And this is the, the way in which a lot of wound treatments have been evaluated and it's the basis for basically addressing preservative change. So the antimicrobial prevents bacterial growth within the dressing. And so the intention here is that the dressing would be applied uh, post debridement and wound hygiene when the biofilm has been disrupted and then preventing the biofilm to, from reforming. And that's a lot different from elimination, which is um, trying to kill an established or mature biofilm, which is much more difficult. And biofilm elimination, if the wound debridement and hygiene is not adequate, there might still be intact biofilm left. And in that case, one would want um, a treatment that actually eliminate, can eliminate a mature biofilm. And talking about biofilm maturity, here's an example of Staphylococcus aureus. This is in the drip flow reactor, which I'll show you later. And the purple um, circles around the top are the control biofilm over time. And the, um, the y-axis is uh, the biofilm density, CFU per centimeter squared. And the x-axis is how long the biofilm is grown for. And the blue squares represent a biofilm that has been treated with a whopping dose of genomycin. And you can see that we get a nice log reduction, about four logs at four hours and 24 hours. And then the biofilm gets harder and harder to kill as time goes on. And by 96 hours, the antibiotic is no longer having any effect. 
And we see the same phenomenon with Pseudomonas aeruginosa, although here it happens much faster. And the biofilm by 24 hours, the biofilm um, is no longer affected by the antibiotic. So the important point here is that biofilm maturity varies between different species, even within the same model. So it's hard to define a biofilm. Is a biofilm mature after three days? Or is it four days? Well, it depends on the species. So that's an important consideration. So now I'll go into some of the models that have been used. This is a 96-well plate assay, which is done in a microtiter plate. And the biofilms are grown in the wells along this plate. Um, it's a high throughput method. It's very reasonable in that it's easy to use and doesn't require a lot of specialized equipment. Um, the cons of this model are, you know, the substrate is plastic. It's a batch system. It tends to be highly variable, so you need to run a lot of replicates within each experiment as well as repeat experiments. And in our lab, we found that the, um, the biofilms grown in this system are relatively uh, susceptible compared to some of the other models that I'm going to show you. And so these biofilms are, are harder to kill than planktonic bacteria, but not as tough as some of the other uh, biofilms grown in other models. And this model also lacks ruggedness in that small changes to the protocol can really impact the results. And that goes back to that high variability. Okay, the next model I'm going to show is the Calgary biofilm device or the MBEC assay. And this is again a high throughput system, but instead of growing the biofilm in the wells, the biofilm is grown on the pegs in the lid of that, uh, of that plate. And some of the pros for this is that it is an ASTM approved standard method, which means that it's undergone interlaboratory testing and proven to be um, re reproducible. Um, it's also high throughput, and it's more expensive than the 96 well plate, but still relatively uh, reasonable. Um, again, similar cons to the uh, microtiter plates system um, in that it's a plastic substrate and a batch growth system. The next model I'm going to show is the colony biofilm model, and this is one of the simplest models of the biofilm. And in this model, the biofilm is grown on a microporous membrane. We usually use a 0.2 micron pore size membrane. And it's grown on the top of an auger plate. Here it's blood auger. And those membranes with the biofilm, developing biofilm, are transferred to a fresh auger plate every um, 12 or 24 hours. On the bottom of the plate, you can see where one of the membranes has been removed, and there's a little bit of homolysis of the blood auger. And these develop thick biofilms that are highly antimicrobial tolerant. The cons is, um, are, one, the substrate is a filter membrane, which is a, really very uh, wound-like. It's also another batch system. And I also call this a forced biofilm because um, there's no fluid shear to remove unattached cells. So the biofilms are kind of forced into that um, developing um, on that membrane. However, this, as I mentioned, this model does capture the antimicrobial tolerance that we see in biofilm. The next model I want to show is the drip flow reactor. And the biofilms are grown in what's shown there in that four-channel chamber. And the biofilms are grown on a microscope slide within that chamber that's set at a 10-degree angle, and it um, drips, the medium drips uh, near the top of the slide, 
and then runs down the slide and out the exit tubing. And so there is continuous flow with low shear, and the biofilm is grown at a solid liquid air interface. And again, this is an ASTM approved standard method. It provides a lot of sample if you want to do something like um, extract RNA, you've got a lot of sample to work with. There is some substrate flexibility with this model. Um, the ASTM standard uses glass microscope slides, and these can be coated with collagen. Um, and also, the glass microscope slide can be replaced with a slide made of some other material. Um, these biofilms tend to be highly tolerant to antimicrobial treatment. Um, the cons are it's a much more complex setup than the previous models I've shown. And an important thing is it, re it requires a good multi-channel pump to get even flow throughout each channel. So we modified the uh, drip flow reactor to specifically to test wound dressings in a model that we call the colony drip flow reactor. And in this model, it's similar to the drip flow reactor, except about halfway down on the glass uh, microscope slide inside the reactor, we glue a circular absorbent pad, and you can see it uh, in white underneath the membrane. And then the microporous membrane is placed on top of that. Um, so when the drip um, comes down the slide, it wicks up through that absorbent pad and continuously feeds the biofilm from underneath. And then if you'd like to do a biofilm prevention experiment, you can inoculate the membrane and then place a wound dressing on top of it, or else you can grow the biofilm for biofilm elimination and then place the wound dressing on top of it. And so this grows uh, thick biofilm. This model does have substrate flexibility in that um, we have used acellular dermal matrix on top of the membrane, so you can grow the biofilm on an acellular dermal matrix in this as well. It simulates wound exudate, and you can uh, vary the flow rate to simulate uh, different exudate rates in wound dressings. So it is well suited for dress testing both dressings and gels. Um, again, it requires a good multi-channel pump. The, comp the setup is somewhat complex. And again, we have this um, forced biofilm. And the last model I'd like to um, uh, show is the porcine skin explant model, which was developed by Dr. Schultz's lab at the University of Florida. And here the biofilm is grown on a uh, skin explant, and there's um, a divot created in the center of the explant, and the biofilm is grown in there. And the whole explant is placed in a, a semi-solid nutrient auger medium uh, to, to promote biofilm growth. Like the colony biofilm model, the explant can be transferred to fresh medium to develop the biofilm over time. And so the substrate in this case is relevant, and it can be compared to in vivo uh, porcine models. The cons are it's a batch system. Availability and consistency of the tissue can be a problem. And also, there's a lot of tissue preparation involved in this model. I'll talk a little bit about other substrates. Um, I've already mentioned collagen coatings, which are available in kits for glass and other surfaces. There's also 3D collagen matrices that are on the market. Um, and acellular dermal matrix, which is um, graft material um, and composed of extracellular matrix from porcine, human, 
the the downside of this is the this material is fairly expensive and it's sometimes hard to get. Um, and then there's also engineered tissue models which contain both the extracellular matrix as well as cells such as keratinocytes and fibroblasts. So chronic wound microorganisms, most of the testing that's been done is with Staphylococcus, both coagulase negative and Staph aureus, as well as Pseudomonas, Pseudomonas aeruginosa in particular. And so those, those bacteria are prevalent in chronic wounds, so they're a logical choice. Carini bacterium also tends to be um, have a high rel relative abundance in wounds, but the ro its role in pathogenicity is poorly understood, and it's rarely included in, in uh, wound models to date. Um, and then the biofilm can also contain anaerobes, um, oral anaerobes such as Prevotella and Fusobacterium, or enteric anaerobes such as Anaerococcus and others. And one of the questions is, um, do we use a polymicrobial biofilm? So we know that most wounds contain a polymicrobial community with two to five abundant species. And there's often a lot of low abundant species as well. However, their role is uh, not well understood. And with these various species, we can have interspecies interactions. And that can uh, affect strain compatibility. Um, for example, Certain strains of Pseudomonas aeruginosa will kill Staphylococcus aureus, so those aren't compatible. And these interspecies interactions can also have effects on antimicrobial efficacy. If anaerobes are, be, are to be included in the model, then specialized culture techniques are also necessary. So I want to show an example of the effect of a polymicrobial uh, biofilm on antimicrobial efficacy from some work we've done in my lab. And this was done with the colony biofilm map model that I showed you before. And we either have single species or mixed species biofilm of Staph aureus, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, and Clostridium perfringens, an anaerobe. And we can grow all these in the colony drip flow model under ambient conditions. But the important thing here is when we treat these biofilms with rifampin for Staph aureus, we get a much better log reduction in the single species biofilm than we do in the, in the multi-species biofilm. So here are some of the challenges for in vitro wound biofilm models. It's always a balance between reasonable, reasonableness and relevance. The substratum, is it important or relevant or practical um, is a consideration. And to some extent, this depends on the treatment that's going to be applied. If you're applying an oxidizing um, antimicrobial like uh, hypochlorite or iodine, having that extracellular matrix or extracellular matrix in cells will provide more organic matter and make it harder for the treatment to um, destroy that biofilm. Hardly any models incorporate white, white blood cells, and that's um, difficult to do, especially with neutrophils, which don't grow in culture. So they're often neglected, and the immune response might be better evaluated with uh, in vivo animal models. And then the decision of whether to go with a monospecies biofilm or a poly polymicrobial biofilm, perhaps testing both would be the best. And actually testing against multiple models is also a, a good approach. But the question remains is what is the clinical relevance of these in vitro models? And that's hard to address because in order to get at that, you would have to test 
uh, treatments that had varying efficacy in uh, in the particular models, and then test those same treatments clinically. And it's not practical and not ethical to test low abundance or mediocre treatments in the clinic. So that's you know a hard study to do. For evaluation of wound treatments, a wide variety of, of methods have been used. Um, often these aren't really distinguished of whether they're research or testing methods. Mostly it's been in the 96 well and MBEC system, and there's quest the questionable relevance to the wound environment with those systems. Replicates within an experiment versus independent experiments conducted on different days um, is often not addressed in these studies. So we can't tell if they actually did multiple independent experiments or just had multiple replicates within an experiment. And then reproducibility and ruggedness is also often not addressed, particularly um, ruggedness. Ruggedness testing um, has been performed for few methods. And then as I mentioned, we have kind of a lack of clinical correlation. So to sum things up, um, a wide variety of models out there, but the model should balance reason, reasonableness and relevance. The model should provide similar results in independent experiments. It should be responsive and rugged, as well as reproducible. And it should take into account the substrate or the wound bed, as well as the wound fluid and the microorganisms involved. And then finally, uh, as I mentioned a couple times, the clinical significance of the in vitro models uh, is, is unclear. And that ends my talk. And I will now turn over the presentation to the speaker for the next session, Dr. Hamoud. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. James. The overview of my talk will be the biofilm development and the tolerance of the bacteria within the biofilm to antibiotics, the standardized method to evaluate the effect of antimicrobials on both the planktonic cultures and on biofilms, the models to evaluate the antimicrobial activity on biofilms. We'll also discuss the biofilm treatment, which include the prevention as well as the treatment, uh, the elimination and challenges associated with each one of them. We will, later on, we'll talk about the modified models to assess biofilm elimination specifically in infected wounds. And we'll conclude by discuss the challenges of the polymicrobial nature of the biofilms. So very quickly, the, the biofilm process formation uh, is when planktonic cells get on the uh, surface, it's attached, and this is change from reversible to irreversible attachment, and the bacteria will grow and start forming the exopolysaccharide matrix. At the end, biofilm will change into a very well-developed, mature biofilm, and from that biofilm, planktonic cells will start dispersing. These cells will start an infection process or go somewhere else and start an, uh, a biofilm somewhere else. Now. With respect to the uh, resistance to antimicrobials, the bacteria within the biofilm are heterogeneous in that they are not exactly all resistant in the, at the same rate. So the ones at the top of the biofilm, they are the most metabolically active. And even though they are all covered by the matrix, but they are more, these ones on the top are more susceptible to antibiotics and they are continuously changing in their gene expression and protein expression. 
The one in the middle, they are under a stress response, and this leads to the production or the expression of certain sets of genes that are involved in response in stress response. And among them are the resistance to different antimicrobials. The one at the bottom of the biofilms are the least metabolically active. The oxygen level is very low, and their resistance is expected to be really high. Now, in clinical laboratories, the, uh, when they evaluate the minimum amount of antimicrobials that are required or that to visibly prevent the growth of pathogenic bacteria, which is called MIC, this is done on planktonic cultures and media and uh, an artificial media in the lab. In contrast, the same bacteria within a biofilm, in a wound, or in infection, the resistance within of this bacteria is. 100 times or even 1,000 times higher than in its planktonic form. Therefore, there's the disparities. And that's led to the development of certain sets of systems other than MIC that are specific for the biofilms. These are called the minimum biofilm inhibition concentration and the minimum biofilm elimination concentration. And I will discuss these things shortly. Now, this is a very quickly uh, a schematic diagram showing a possible hypo uh, the MIC of hypothetical antimicrobials for uh, pathogens that varies in their uh, concentrations. Biofilm development uh, system has been uh, established, and these can be utilized to assess the effect of antimicrobials. These are usually divided into two main systems, a closed system and an open system. The closed system includes the microtiter plate assay and the Calgary device. The open system includes the flow cell system and the substratum suspending uh, reactors. For the uh, microtiter plate assay, it's a very straightforward and very simple, but it's very essential. You, the biofilm is developed on the well of a microtiter plates and the, later on, the planktonic cells are decanted, and the biofilm is stained with a crystal violet. As you can see, the intensity of the color is, is reflecting the strength of that biofilm. This is a study done by uh, Hancock Group in Canada to examine the effect of media on biofilm production by two Perigenosa strain and one Staph aureus MRSA strain. Now, the assessment of this biofilm here is after the biofilm is stained, this stained biofilm is dissolved using ethanol, and the solution is examined on a spectrophotometer. And the reading here, as you can see in this slide, the reading on the y-axis, the reading reflects the mass of that biofilm. So that's measurement. Before I leave this slide, the important thing here is that this slide measures both dead and live cells within the biofilm. And we know a considerable portion of the biofilm is consistent of dead cells. The next system is the Calgary device, which is a straightforward system and is very useful in that the bacteria is inoculated again in a well of microtiter plates, but then um, a sterile pegs are inserted. The bacteria will grow for biofilm on these pegs. The pegs are removed. 
washed and inserted in a new wells with a fresh media, and this media now contains different concentration of antimicrobial to be tested. The bio, after a while of, incuba of incubation, the biofilm are disrupted, the cells are serially diluted, the bacterial culture is serially diluted, and samples are plated on a nutrient plate to determine the colony forming units. So here the measurement is the number of microorganisms existing within that biofilm. Unlike the previous one, you are dealing here with live bacteria, which is the number of live bacteria within the biofilm, which is called the colony forming units. The other system, the open system, the, the, flow, part, the flow cell system is designed for examining biofilm on surfaces on which the media is flowing continuously, such as, say, for example, catheters, urinary catheters, or uh, intravenous catheters. And in this system, uh, the, uh, the lab system is very, the, the article is inserted in this flow cell that you see is in the middle, and then the media, the biofilm media, is flowing over it continuously, controlled by the peristaltic pump and in, in terms of its rate. After several days, the biofilm is very well developed. The system is all disassembled. You take these articles and you examine the biofilm using confocal laser scanning microscopy. The important thing here is that the bacteria is genetically engineered in a way, in that it has a fluorescent signal, and it has the gene that code either for uh, green fluorescent protein or red fluorescent protein to allow you to see it on a microscopy. Then you transport the image to a computer. This is a study that's been done on Pseudomonas aeruginosa, that strain that contain the uh, green fluorescent signal and you can see the development of the biofilm at different stages. Here, the measurement, unlike the other two, on the images themselves. So when you take them and transport them to the computer, then there's a computer program that helps you analyze the thickness of the biofilm and the coverage of the biofilm or the surface com complete or not with that biofilm. The last system is the CDC develops substratum suspending reactors. It's exactly similar to the flow one that I just discussed, except that if you look at the one on the right, you will see the, this rod, like, like guillotine-like rod, it has stacks of filters on which the biofilms are developed. These are filters that are separated from each other with, by a stainless steel plate that has pores. So the media passes through them, and again, you disassemble and examine the biofilm uh, accordingly. Now, treatment of the biofilm is basically divided into a prevention and uh, elimination. For the prevention, you are basically preventing the planktonic bacteria from establishing a biofilm. Therefore, the test system is any of the ones that I described above. Uh, but the essential thing is that the agent or the antimicrobial agent is added at zero time, which is exactly at the time you are inoculating the bacteria in the biofilm. The measurement here, you are measuring the minimum amount of that antimicrobial agent that prevent the bacteria from establishing biofilm, which we call it minimum biofilm inhibitory concentration. These biofilms can develop, be developed on different types of surfaces, including medical devices, tissues, and other parts. Now, it challenges, although it's a major 
movement from the regular MIT in the lab to de to to define or to use the system to design or to determine the biofilm the BIMC there are still other challenges that need to be met and these are serious challenges the most important of them are the three here the type of the type of the surface on which the biofilm is formed and that in the lab, we use an artificial surface to develop the biofilm, a plastic surface, a glass surface. In the body, and during infection, the bacteria form biofilm on either in a wound or a tissue or a mucosal surface. More importantly, the environment in which the biofilm is developed in the lab is totally different from that in the, in the, in, within the body. For example, we utilize in the lab um, very nutrient-rich media for development of the biofilm, whereas in the body, the biofilm media is either urine or blood or tear or saliva, and it's definitely in, in, within this media, the amount of the nutrient is very limited, and the ability of the bacteria to form biofilm is going to be completely different, or at least limited. And the last point is that the type of biofilm, uh, the type of the assay, whether it's a closed or open system, is going to have a major impact on the, uh, the determination of the uh, biofilm minimal inhibitory concentration. Now, before I leave the biofilm prevention, I would like to very quickly talk about the coated medical devices, and including uh, contact lenses, uh, endotracheal catheters, urinary catheters, uh, prosthetic devices, tamponastomy tubes, intravenous catheters. Bio Microbiogenic bacteria is very well capable of forming biofilm in each one of the surface of each one of these devices. Therefore, once these devices are inserted in the body and the bacteria reach them, it will make a biofilm and the, the device at best condition is, is failed and has to be extracted. And this is a major serious problem for the health uh, industry. In this regard, we are not dealing with a solution to be added to the device itself. Rather, the approach is to add the antimicrobial agents on the surface of the device, on the dry surface of the de of the device, before you insert it in the body, hoping that the amount of the agent will be sufficient to prevent the bacteria from establishing the biofilm. Again, here you have a new set of challenges that have to be addressed. With the time limited, I will just quickly mention two or three of them. The first and the most important of them is the efficacy of the coating. If the if there is any wear somewhere in that catheter or the contact lens, there is a niche that's been not coated, that would be good for the bacteria to start a biofilm and fail the device. Also, the stability of the coating once the device is inserted within the body. And lastly, is the leaching of the antimicrobial agents from the device. If the, leech, if the leaching is significant, that will expose the device for biofilm development. Also, the amount of leaching material or leached material it may be sufficient to cause toxicity to the healthy tissues where the device has been inserted. Now, the, la the second part of the treatment is biofilm elimination. And here, what you are dealing with is 
eliminating a biofilm that has already been established. So you would develop the biofilm for 24 hours, 48 hours, and the system here is, again, any of the system that we described above, but you add the agents after the biofilm has been developed. The measurement here, you are not measuring inhibition, but you are measuring the least amount or the minimum amount of that antimicrobial agent that is sufficient to eliminate completely that biofilm. And there we refer to it as minimum biofilm elimination concentrations. And again, this is the same surfaces as I discussed with the uh, inhibition above. The challenges are shared, some of them with the inhibition, but there are new sets of challenges. The most important thing that's shared, which is the really serious problem, is the environment where the thing is being, the biofilm is developed. But here, since you are dealing with an already established biofilm, the problem is the variation, as I told you in the first few slides, within the biofilm the variation among the bacteria within the biofilm and their resistance. So you have to have to make sure that the amount of the biofilm antimicrobial to be used sufficient to eliminate bacteria within all regions within that biofilm. The other important point is the combination of anti-biofilm and antimicrobial agents, and I will discuss this in a few minutes. And the last is the polymicrobial nature of the biofilms. Now, as you have seen, that we have gone through a quite a distance from the MIC, and we are still having certain challenges to be addressed. Now, I will, uh, in, to address some of these challenges, there have been some modified innovative approaches in order to get as close as possible in terms of the environment within the body or within the infection sites. And, and I, will, I will use wound as an example of some of these innovative approaches. Wound, as long as, as long as the bacteria exist within the wound or within a biofilm in the wound, the wound will never heal, whether it's a chronic or acute wound. And the, this is a picture of the wound where the bacteria exist in a biofilm and all the uh, uh, factors that contribute to persistence of that biofilm within the wound. Therefore, the issue here is there are certain, I will talk about the three innovative approaches to, to be close to wound treatment in terms of biofilm. So one of them addresses the wound, uh, the treatment as an ointment. And, and this, this system, in this system, we call it the cellular disc um, in vitro biofilm wound infection model. And in this model, basically, it's a very simple. We have developed this model several years ago. We basically, you take a, a sterile cellulose disc, you put them on a nutrient plate and develop the biofilm on them. And here, to mimic the wound and the, to get closer to the wound, you bring a, 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 a sterile uh, gauze and you spread a specific amount of the antimicrobial agent in an ointment form or a gel form. And then to allow the antimicrobial to be in direct contact with the biofilm for a prolonged period. And after a, prolonged, a period of incubation, you disassemble the system, take the disc, and then uh, determine the number of the bacteria or the colony forming units on that disc. Now, we have examined, we utilize this system to assess the effect of three commonly utilized antimicrobial uh, 
antibiotic cream, gentamicin, neopuricin, and triple antibiotic on two staph aureus clinical isolates. And as you can see that the response to each one of each one of the isolates to the antibiotics varies and the response of the isolates to two isolates to the same antibiotic cream also varies. So that's basically this this system utilizes one aspect which is getting a closer by using the aspect of antibiotic cream in terms of wound treatment. The other system is called the uh, the uh, Lubbock chronic wound biofilm model. This one is developed by uh, Dr. Randy Walcott at the Wound Center here in Lubbock and ha has been uh, used very extensively uh, by so many investigators. And I would like to focus your attention on the A part of this figure only. As you see, there are two tubes. That's the tubes on the, the tube in on the left side has a debrided material that's been obtained from an infected wound. The one on the right side has been the, the, the group decided after they analyzed the components or constituents of the debrided material, they have devised an in vitro media, which include, mainly consists of uh, uh, a broth, 50% uh, of plasma, and 5% of freeze-thawed laked horse-red blood cells. And they infect them with the bacteria. And amazingly, if you compare it, it's almost identical to the debrided material that's been obtained from an infected tissue. So here, once the bacteria is grown, you're going to have a beautiful biofilm similar to the in vivo condition. Now you can use different treatment, homogenize the, the material, and determine the number of the bacteria, which will be in response to the number will be higher or lower or completely eliminated, depending on the effectiveness of the antimicrobial agents that you are utilizing. Now, the best among of the whole world of everything is to have a system that really get rid or get away from all these in vitro situations and supply you with what the bacteria sees in vivo within the body, which is the immune response or the immune systems, immune cells, the blood supply, everything else. And it would would be lucky if there is a system that is very close or an, an, a model that is very close to the infection. And in this regard, this the, the with, inter, uh, with respect to the wound infection, there is the murine model of infected wound that's been developed by uh, Dr. Kinderamba of my, uh, at the Health Science Center here several years ago. The system or the, the model is extremely simple, but it's very, very powerful. All what you do is you make a wound, uh, excite part of the skin on the dorsum of the mice, and then this wound covered with uh, a wound cover, and then you infect or you inject the bacteria under the skin. Under the, under the cover on the wound directly. Then the biofilm will be formed, then you remove this and you bring the antimicrobial agents uh, in a gauze and you cover it. And then you, at the end, you take the wound material, excise them from the tissues, homogenize them, dilute them, determine the number of the bacteria. Again, that would be in response. The beauty of this system is that it's getting away from every possible in vitro and it supply you with everything in vivo. Now, I talked about the combination of the antibiofilm and antimicrobial, and in this regard, 
basically researchers have given up on the idea that one antibiotic will do everything in terms of attacking the biofilm. So what they decided, decided to combine a biofilm agents, that agents that will destroy biofilm, but have they have no effect on the bacteria within the biofilm, and an antibiotic that once it gets the chance, it will get into the biofilm and open biofilm and destroy the bacteria. And they have utilized different uh, agents that are designed to crack the biofilm. This is an example of a study that's being conducted here by the, again by Ramba Group, and basically this is the they develop the biofilm in the murine model using a Pseudomonas original strain that has a signal, uh, a fluorescence or luminous signals, and they use an agent which is uh, uh, glycoside hydrolysis. This is an anti-biofilm agent that attack the glycosidic bond within the extrapolysaccharide matrix and break it. That's basically going to open the biofilm. And they use the broad-spectrum antibiotic, which is uh, meropenem, so that they will see the, the effect. And very quickly here, if you look on the right side of the of this figure, that the first one is just a control where they hit inactivated the glycoside hydrolysis and there is no effect as you may expect. Here they use the heat inactivated by a glycoside hydrolase, but they add the meropenem. There's definitely the antibiotic did a major effect on the biofilm and significantly reduced the biofilm, but it did not eliminate it. However, when they use combination of the antibiofilm, antimicrobial agents, the biofilm was completely eliminated. And the left side of the figure is basically a measurement of what you see on the right side. Now, it would be great but again, the challenge here is you have to figure out the not the um, effective concentration of the antibiotic, but the effective concentration of the biofilm, and to juggle both of them to reach to the, uh, the best one. But it would be great if you can find one agent or one compound that supply both, then you don't have to worry about these two, but worry about one concentration only. And next science company have developed a wound gel uh, a while ago, and that has the it has a one compound that has the ability to do, to kill the bacteria by intercalating or in in the cytoplasmic membrane and basically had, uh, lysing the bacteria uh, that kill the planktonic bacteria, but it also chelate has uh, ion chelating activity, and that activity will again to affect the extrapolosaccharide matrix and uh, dis destroy the structure. And uh, therefore, it will accomplish both activities, antibiofilm and antimicrobial activities. We have done extensive work with this, and I'm going to show you just very quickly one experiment. We did it using the murine model of wound infection. We infect them, we use them, infect the mice with either Staph aureus or P. originosa. These strains have specific signal luciferase that allow us to measure them on microscope. And the idea here is that we develop the biofilm in all of these mice for 24 hours. We live, we left one with no treatment and the other we treated with the next science wound gel. As you can see, the gel eliminated the biofilm completely and the biofilm did not come back even after 72 hours or even longer than that. So that's a, basically a good example of one compound that do both of them and using an in vivo model. 
The last thing I would like to talk about is the polymicrobial nature of the biofilm, as, as you can see here from this electron micrograph. In nature, biofilms do not exist with a single species. It has always different bacteria that are combined, cooperative, uh, function together, coexist all within that biofilm. And this is a serious problem for the treatment because you have to figure out which one is there and which one is the highest amount and how we, we deal with it because culture may not be the best way to define what's in that biofilm. This is a study we conducted several, several years ago for this is basically an example of polymicrobial nature of the biofilm. These are tympanostomy tubes we obtained from kids with ear infection, and it's the same kid from left ear to tympanostomy tube and right ear tympanostomy tube, and you can see there is a quite difference in the uh, population or the species of the bacteria here, but also in the, the, the prevalence of them. The essential thing or the, the message for us here in terms of the treatment is that they have, we have to determine the species and figure out what, is, what exists within the biofilm and which is predominant that we need to attack. And so uh, in summary, that biofilm treatment includes prevention and elimination. An assay to determine either the inhibition or the biofilm eradication assay. They reflect accurately the amount of the antimicrobial required to the treatment of the biofilm much better than the MIC. And since the biofilm is complex in its nature and its development, standardization of the method has been difficult due to several challenges. And we have discussed several of these challenges, including the, uh, the surface, the environment, the variation and the resistance within the biofilm, the composition of the two treatments, and the polymicrobial nature of the biofilm. Now, where to go from here, or what's the possible or potential solutions? The two main solutions in my mind, or my thinking, is that first is to to develop an in vitro system, like I showed you the examples from the wound, an in vitro system that really mimic closely the environment of that infection site, whether it's a lung infection, an ear infection, uh, a urinary tract infection, anywhere in the body that mimic the same environment. This way, when you challenge it with the antimicrobials, you know the antimicrobial is going to function in an environment that's very close to the environment within the body, and the chance of success of that treatment is very high. The second point is to assess the bacterial population within the, the entire biofilm. And this many wound centers have been using this, which is the pyrosequencing. So you take the depleted material, do pyrosequences, determine the amount, uh, the, the type of the, and then you tailor your antibiotic treatment accordingly. Thank you, Dr. Sturley. So uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Hamoud. Um, now, in, in my um, section of the, uh, of the lectures, I'm going to be talking about examining approaches to evaluating existing new antibiofilm technologies for chronic wound care. Now, as, uh, more, there's more and more evidence, uh, mounting evidence, uh, which shows that infected chronic wounds are actually infected by uh, biofilms. And um, we, we can clearly uh, see this now in the literature. Now, when we're evaluating new technologies um, in terms of their therapeutic activity of biofilms, we have to consider a lot of different challenges when, when vectoring biofilms. 
Unlike planktonic cells, which are relatively easy to, um, to analyze because they're very readily diluted, they're a, they're a homogenous um, solution, and we can very precisely control their growth rates and the bioburdens, bacteria in biofilms are highly contextual. Depending on where they are in, in the body, depending on the materials that, that, that they're on, they, they can be uh, highly variable. And so some of the issues that we have when we're thinking about standard methods for growing and testing biofilms, how do we standardize the bio burden? We can't just take a surface and cut it up into ever and smaller and smaller pieces because it becomes unmanageable. How about the heterogeneity? How do we handle the heterogeneity? Additionally, as biofilms grow and mature, the susceptibility changes over time. What's a relevant challenge concentration for a bacterial biofilm? This is important if we're thinking about a topical application versus a systemic application. Also, what is a relevant challenge time for planktonic cells? Uh, a 24-hour minimum inhibitory concentration is um, sufficient for rapidly growing bacteria. However, for biofilms, it might take a number of hours, if not days, before we see significant log reductions. How do you know that the active agent is getting to the bacteria when, it, when they're in biofilms? And how do we assess the efficacy of a therapeutic? And what is the relevant reduction in the bio burden? So if, if we go from a 10 to the 6 to a 10 to the 4, is that therapeutically relevant? These are all um, important questions. So now, here on, in this slide, we look at the various stages of uh, biofilm development. And so here we see in the, uh, in the bottom left, um, bacteria coming to a surface. This can be a uh, host um, uh, tissue or it can be a uh, foreign body, and bacteria in the vicinity of um, a surface can attach. They can then start to grow, uh, form biofilms, produce EPS, this uh, slide matrix that uh, Dr. James um, and Dr. Hamoud have talked about earlier, and then the biofilm uh, progresses and matures, and the final stage is the bacteria, uh, single cells or aggregates of biofilm can break off. Now, it's quite important when we're thinking about designing um, strategies for growing and testing biofilms that the, the testing modality is aligned with the stage of the biofilm development we want to interrupt, i.e. are we interrupting the, the initial attachment, where we might be concerned about the very you know, growing biofilms and looking at them in the very early stages, or are we trying to disperse and treat uh, preformed biofilms. And in that case, we might be, you know, wanting to grow more uh, mature biofilms in the latter stages. If we're looking at dispersal agents, for example, that might not be so effective against single cells on, on, on um, surfaces, but more effective against mature biofilms which have grown uh, the EPS. Now, if we look at some strategies here in the, uh, in the next slide, we can see that there's uh, three uh, general strategies for um, controlling biofilms. One is surface modification. Uh, how do we stop biofilms from attaching and uh, growing in the first place? This is probably the ideal place to, to uh, direct a therapeutic, but oftentimes it's not practical. Often, particularly in a wound environment where we don't have really a surface that we can modify very easily, oftentimes we don't find out about, the, uh, about a biofilm infection until the biofilm has, has actually matured. Then we move into technologies which might require um, degradation of the EPS matrix, or where we can put in chemicals which get the bacteria to naturally disperse. And, and these sort of technologies are going to be likely done in the presence of a, an, an antibiotic or an antimicrobial. Because once we've dispersed the bacteria, then of course we have to be concerned about where are those 
about our dispersed bacteria going. And then finally, we have the physical removal, where biofilms can be physically removed by, say, water jets, uh, sharp debridement uh, methodologies uh, such as that, uh, an ultrasound. And of course, we can always do combinatorial, um, take a combinatorial approach where some of these different, uh, different strategies are combined. So looking at the choice of a system, we have, there's two, two decision-making uh, steps in the decision-making process. One is, what is the biofilm growth model that we are going to use? The second is, what's the therapeutic testing model? Now, in some cases, the growth model that we use is going to be the same model as the therapeutic testing model. But in other cases, not necessarily so. And I'll get into that in a little bit in the, um, in the lecture. So the various considerations are cost, speed, user variability and reproducibility, the predictive value. But then we have to think about other uh, issues um, beyond um, sort of the scientific um, in vitro and in vivo aspects, such as are our therapeutic testing models and our biofilm growth models, are they going to be aligned to substantiate a claim? Are they going to meet regulatory agency benchmarks? So, for example, we can design testing strategies which might work very, very well, but if the regulatory agency says, well, that's not in alignment with what we expect, see, then it might have um, limited value. So in terms of the choice of the, choice of the model, we, we've heard this um, uh, to a certain extent by Dr. James and Dr. Hamoud. We, we pretty much go from a, um, simple, cheap uh, methods, in vitro rapid screens, through various um, uh, stages of complexity to full-size uh, large animal models. And there's various pros and cons with these models. Um, the in vitro rapid screens are relatively cheap, relatively simple. We can do lots of them. We can get uh, good statistics. But do they actually recapitulate the complexity of the wound environment? We move into the large animal models. We can see how the, the large animal model allows us to look at the uh, host response, which an in vitro model doesn't. But now we get into um, expense. We get into lower numbers of uh, replicates. And these are certainly not uh, high throughput. So these, these are all um, uh, issues that we need to sort of consider when we design our flow of the various models. So now, now moving on from there, let's take a look at our methods toolbox. So in a recent uh, paper by uh, Matthew Malone et al., we discussed, um, uh, this was done with uh, Dara Gores from the Center for Biofilm Engineering and a number, number of other um, authors, we discussed various test outputs, uh, various microorganisms which could be used, and the growth conditions. And here we really start to see the complexity that biofilm testing brings. So unlike a, a conventional MIC, where we can just do a microbroth dilution and um, expose um, different concentrations of bacteria, now we have to worry about the organisms we're using, the multi-species, multi single species. Is there fluid flow? Is there high shear, no shear? And then um, what is our claim? Is it a kill claim? Is it a kill and removal claim or just a removal claim or prevention? In terms of our treatment, do we need to remove a, a coupon, for example, from a growth system and then treat it? Or can we actually treat it in, in situ? What are our controls going to be? And if we are doing in vitro work where we're growing biofilms and we expose them to a therapeutic, and then we want to validate the therapeutic. Now we have to use. Now we have to decide how we're actually going to validate that what we've done 
has killed the biofilm on the surface. So now we need to actually remove biofilm or, or look at that surface for evidence of um, removal of biofilm so that we can validate our removal and, um, and, and cell counting. For example, if I have a biofilm and I have a therapeutic and then I do a cell count and I get zero cell count, and I say, great, I've killed everything on the surface. But then I go and take a look at the surface and then realize actually the, me the methodology that I was using to get the biofilm off for, um, for its enumeration didn't result in actually removing that biofilm. What I have now is an artifact. So we really need to look at the surface as well to make sure that our surface removal, such as scraping, sonication, or homogenization, how effective is that? I'd just like to, at this point, uh, make a distinction between standard methods and research methods. The standard method is exactly specified the equipment guidelines and steps that result in, in a reproducible outcome. This is very low operator variability, something which is generally required, which has low complexity, and which has defined uh, reproducibility. Almost by definition, this um, system is going to be a simpler, a less complex system. Now, research method can be quite different. Research method can be simple, but this is a process used to collect data that leads to the discovery of new information. Oftentimes, in our research methods, we actually want to incorporate the complexity of the, of the system, in this case, the wound environment that we're trying to recapitulate. And here, we can bring in a lot more uh, complexity. So we have to, we have to remember um, um, the difference between the standard method and a research method you know, in, in our um, choosing of our, our growth and testing methods. And here's where we need to strike a balance. We need to strike a balance between a method which is uh, relevant, has to have some relevance, it has to have some translatable qualities. It also needs reproducibility, which is less complex. And inevitably, all of these methods, there's going to be this balance which needs to be considered. As we've seen earlier, there's many different biofilm systems for in vitro growth, uh, various flow cells. We see here in this slide a number of different flow cells where bacteria are cultured in the flow cells. Flow cells are excellent for, being, for looking at the bacteria and seeing how they respond um, uh, in real time. They're not high throughput, though, and generally only a number of these can be uh, run at one time. We also have in vitro chemostat-type systems like the CDC reactor, which are seen on the right of the slide. In these systems, we can grow many biofilms in one go, but these systems are generally not very conducive for doing testing. So once the biofilms are grown in these systems, then we need to remove them and put them into a, a different environment for, uh, for testing. Another question we need to ask with these in vitro systems, with conventional biofilm systems, is how like wound biofilms are they? So these tend to be submerged biofilms. They have flow over the top of them. Whereas in wounds, we do have exudate, but we have wounds where biofilms in a wound bed, we don't really have fast-flowing liquid over them. They're, they're in a very slow-flowing, seeping exudate, and then they're um, in contact with air. So when we put a dressing on those, um, if, if, if our technology is a dressing-based technology, that might be very different uh, the way it's applied from, say, a biofilm that's grown in submersion. Now, biofilms grown under different methods, uh, different uh, flow cells, or diff sorry, uh, different um, growth systems can look very different. And in this slide, we see the same biofilm, Pseudomonas ruginosa, but the morphology of this biofilm is highly variable. 
And the reason is, and this is just three different examples, biofilms grow in different systems, different days. And the reason for this is that biofilm morphology is highly dependent on the type of system that it's grown in. Just wanted to, to, to point that out. So I'm just going to quickly run through some of the different uh, methods. I'm not going to take too long on this because doctors uh, James and Hamoud have already gone through this. But, um, but in this slide, we see on the left, so this is the 96-well crystal violet um, assay. Very, very simple. We can run lots of them. In this case, biofilm is grown in a 96-well assay. Um, a, a stain, such as crystal violet, there can be other stains, are applied. And then we just look, use a very, very simple color metric assay to get an idea of what, the, um, what our therapeutic has um, done in terms of reducing biofilm. How close is this to a wound? A big question. The, the other question here is if our therapeutic is, say, a water jet type therapeutic or um, heat or a, um, or a dressing, we're not going to be able to really apply that dressing very easily in, in this kind of assay. We can take an active agent and we can add an active agent and we can see what that active agent is. But if, we're, but if our dressing is like, it, it comes from a, from a, um, from a dressing um, where the activity comes over time, this particular model might not be um, the best model for that. So what sort of other models are out there? Well, there's a number of uh, models which um, are now ATSM um, approved models. And these come basically from uh, the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency methods. And these methods are based on uh, different systems, such as the uh, CDC reactor, uh, the drip flow reactor, which you've heard um, about earlier, and also micro titer plates. Um, in these models, being standard models, they define the organisms, a strain of Pseudomonas originosa and Staph aureus. So these models can be quite useful because they start to align with the, uh, with, with the FDA um, expectations. And, and FDA are starting to use these uh, models, guidelines, for their um, expectancy of what, they, um, of what they would like to see in a log reduction. Now, in, importantly, these models define a significant reduction as being a six log reduction. That's really based on a CDC coupon, which is about one centimeter. And so this can, this can pose some problems. There's some systems where you don't get that high concentration of the bacteria. So again, when we design our test systems, if we want to try to align them with an FDA expectancy um, for efficacy, now we might have to make the system artificially high in the numbers of um, bacteria to, to reproduce a, um, a very worst case scenario. So this is, um, in this next slide, we see the, the sort of the process, which is um, sort of a generic process based on these standard methods, where the biofilm is grown, in this case, in a CDC reactor. It is then moved from coupons and exposed to a treatment after exposure to treatment, it's sampled, and, in, and here we see uh, an example where the biofilm was removed by um, sonication in the water bath, and then the um, sonicate is then analyzed. And these are, in, again, in line with EPA STM methods, and they're being used as a guideline uh, by the FDA for investigation of new drug device exemptions. Moving on from the uh, in vitro um, systems where biofilms are grown on hard surfaces, there's um, a model uh, for growing biofilms on soft surfaces. This is around a, a, a pipette tip. This model was developed by the Lubbock Group, 
to more closely uh, make a uh, wound environment. And here biofilm is grown from multi species on a pet tip immersed in plasma and light porcine red blood cells and molten broth. And what they found was is that the biofilm, as it developed, developed this um, tissue-like structure around the pipette tip, which could then be peeled off. The next step, so it does look more like an in vivo uh, wound, so the, but the next step consideration here is how is this biofilm going to be, uh, to be used to apply a particular technology. We have drip flow reactors and we have colony biofilms. Now these might resemble more of a biofilm which has an air liquid interface. And so in this case, the biofilms are sort of bathed in a liquid, uh, in, a, in a layer of liquid, more like they might be in a wound environment. And we can quite easily ma imagine growing the biofilms in these systems and then applying a topical agent or uh, dressing to these biofilms. Moving from a glass or um, um, uh, hard substrates, uh, developed, it's, uh, a model that's been developed by Alves et al. It's taking a porcine um, skin um, um, and punching, uh, punching out um, coupons and then using those coupons to grow biofilms. So now our substrate, our substratum looks more um, like a uh, animal model, but we are not going to be getting the, uh, the immune response that we get from an animal. But it's soft and it has the, uh, in, in its actual skin. So in terms of our in vivo and our ex vivo evaluations of biofilms, once we have these models, what can we do with them in terms of counting, in terms of evaluating biofilms? Well, there's plate counting. Um, we have issues here with sampling and culturing um, issues. Are we getting the bacteria off? If they're in biofilm mode, are they readily cultured? Oftentimes we find that bacteria are difficult to culture because they go into a dormancy. We can use imaging. Um, this can be um, ex, ex vivo uh, through confocal um, imaging or scanning electron imaging of biopsies. Or if we use bioluminescent strains, we can do in vivo imaging. And this is more conducive for small animal models like rabbits or mice, where the, where we, the wound can be followed along as bacteria produce light in that wound environment. In terms of animal models or um, cell lines, we can now start to look at the cytokine profile. The cytokine profile gives us more information. It, it tells us how is the body, how is the um, tissue seeing the infection. And we can use that as a guideline to how a therapeutic might be progressing in terms of controlling infection. And lastly, one of the most um, relevant um, signs is looking at healing itself. Closure rate, transepidermal, water losses is functionality, and histopathology, which is semi-quantitative. How is the healing process occurring? And we can look at both the bacteria and we can look at the, um, the healing process. Small animal models, uh, there's a murine model in which a, um, uh, a punch uh, biopsy can be infected and that can be followed along. Um, mice are relatively uh, cheap to work with, when I say relative, um, I mean for a small animal. However, they can clear the infections quickly, um, sometimes before the biofilms can actually develop and mature. So oftentimes we need interventions to, to, um, uh, to make sure that we keep, keep um, the wound from closing. And this can, by, can be by putting um, uh, some kinds of strip across the, uh, across the wound to actually hold it open. And then finally, the large animal, the pig model, has been used um, reasonably extensively 
for reproducing uh, biofilms. And one of the most um, common methods is to do a full, uh, to do a controlled burn, a full thickness burn. This is um, where a piece of metal is applied to the skin at a controlled pressure, time and temperature, and then subsequently infected and then monitored. And so this can be monitored for wound closure and um, function. And endpoint analysis includes CFU, uh, cell count histology, confocal, and cytokines. So in conclusion, what I found, you know, hope that um, everyone has taken away from part of this lecture is there's many different types of biofilm growth systems. I don't have a prescriptive answer of which is the appropriate growth system. It's highly dependent on your own particular system. Um, the validation of a technology is a multi-step process. We often go from a very simple system of screening and move up through um, various levels of complexity. It's very important that our models are compatible with the applied technology. So it's all very well to grow a biofilm which is very reproducible. But if I can't actually apply my technology in the way that it's going to be applied in the, um, in the real world, or at least close to that, then how am I actually going to be able to test that ther therapy? Again, how relevant is this model to, to wounds? It's, as long as we're aware of the model's limitations, I think it's okay. We can sort of explain that. We can explain our hypotheses, hypothesis or our justification for using a particular model, but we have to bear in mind what are the, what are the limitations. Don't ask the model to do more than it can. To balance standard methods versus research-relevant methods, sometimes it's a mistake to try to use research-relevant methods and then turn them into standard methods. And ultimately, at where we are at the moment, uh, large animal models re are, are required um, until in vitro methods can be shown to, re to accurately recapitulate in vivo conditions. And really what we want at the end of this is a, uh, are models which can accurately predict uh, the probability that a uh, therapeutic is going to have translation to clinical application. So thank, thank you very much for your, for your attention. Uh, that wraps up my part of the seminar. And now you will be directed back to the landing page to complete the post-test and evaluation to obtain your credit. Thank you.